My name's Nick Enfield. I am Director of the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre at the University of Sydney. And today I'm talking to Tom Van Doren, who is Associate Professor and Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. He's also in the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney and a professor in the Oslo School of Environmental Humanities at the University of Oslo in Norway. Tom's the author of three hybrid academic trade books, as he puts them, The Wake of Crows, Living and Dying in, a shared wor- in Shared Worlds, uh, which was published in 2019, Flightways, Life and Loss at the Edge of in- Extinction, published in 2014, and Vulture, published in 2011. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of these works and some of the works that uh, Tom is currently engaged in. So uh, welcome, Tom. Hi, Nick. Thanks very much for having me. Of course. Uh, so you describe yourself as a field philosopher, and I'm quite interested in what this term means and what the idea of field philosophy is. So can you, can you tell us what field philosophy is? Yeah, well... I wish I knew. Um, I I guess um, as a term, it's relatively new. I guess people have been talking about it for the last five or so, five or ten years. Um, But I think obviously uh, there there are all sorts of antecedents. And um, so, well, my my background originally is philosophy, and I've moved into more of a cultural studies, feminist, science and technology studies, anthropology space. So more of an interdisciplinary environmental humanities space. Um, so when I, and that really began for me as a PhD student um, in a very interdisciplinary group of people. Um, I was very uh, influenced by my, my principal supervisor, Debbie Bird-Rose, who was an anthropologist, um, but also by a lot of the historians that I was hanging around with. And so I was influenced to start thinking about fieldwork, um, but also to think about how we write, how we ask questions, and especially by the historians to think about about narrative and about writing in a way that is, that's accessible to broader audiences. So where was so, that uh, done? Where did you do your PhD? Oh, at the ANU. Okay. Um, so I, I guess I was um, trying to think about asking philosophical questions in a way that's grounded in the particular, that's drawing on field work, but that's also ex- um, trying to explore those questions in a really accessible, engaging narrative style. So that's that's what field philosophy has come to mean for me. It's really taking these philosophical questions out into the world, uh, asking people, engaging with people uh, as though they have interesting things to say about these questions that, that interest philosophers. Um, it's also about engaging with, for me in particular, with landscapes, with um, animal species that I research, trying to to think with them, think in a situated way inside those histories and places uh, and to, to really take up philosophical questions in a, in a way that's grounded in the particular. So do you think that philosophy as it's been done, so, you know, if, you, if you're promoting or developing an idea of field philosophy, it's, it implies a, a, a distinction from kind of what's traditionally been done in, in philosophy. So do you see yourself as addressing a problem or a shortcoming in philosophy as it's traditionally been done? Um, 
I don't want to try try and characterize the whole field of philosophy as as missing something or um, but I think there are a couple of key things that the, at least what I'm trying to do in this field philosophical space um, is important for philosophy and so so one of those is um, well thinking about ethics which is most of my work is, is asking ethical and political questions there's a, a conventional distinction between um, this kind of meta-ethical questions that are more abstract and, and a more applied ethics that takes those uh, principles into the field, applies them to particular situations. I think in contrast, what a, a field philosophical approach to ethics is doing, I'm, I'm thinking of my own work, obviously, but people like uh, Isabel Stengers, um, Matthew Trelew, Michelle Bastian, um, Brett Buchanan, other people who are thinking in this field philosophical way is those ethical questions become more of an emergent um, practice. So it's less about thinking in abstract terms and applying to the world, uh, more about um, grappling with the complexity of particular situations and, and developing a kind of ethics that emerges out of, uh, out of that context. So I think there is something slightly different going on there. And, and the other big thing, a very well-acknowledged problem in, in philosophy is the... the well, the Western, the Eurocentrism. Um, and so I think there is, um, there's also something going on in field philosophy that's an effort to engage with the insights of Indigenous peoples, of other cultural traditions more broadly, um, to, to try to thicken up, I guess, the kinds of resources we have for asking these questions um, beyond the traditional Western philosophical canon. So I'd say those are two of the main things, if I have to to point to what is going on that's a little bit different um, that, that really matter to me in the field of philosophy. Right. So, um, you know, it's uh, fascinating to me to think about some of the kind of translations. I mean, you know, philosophy is not my field, but I do observe some interesting kind of transitions that may have arrived at a similar point to yours, but through a different route. So what I have in mind is that the famous um, kind of moral problem, the so-called trolley problem, which I guess when it was introduced in the 70s was a thought experiment. Um, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, a streetcar is going to run someone over and, you know, you are able to pull the, you know, it's going to run four people over and you can pull the lever that makes the, the car go onto the other track and it'll only kill one person and various... Um, variations on that and, and, and what do you do? And I suppose that was invented as a thought experiment of which there are many in, in philosophy literature. Um, and I see that nowadays it's a very real question in relation to self-driving cars and, you know, the way in which they have to be, uh, you know, programmed to make decisions in those kinds of contexts. So do you, do you think that an example like that is kind of a case in which people have been pushed into field philosophy in a sense, uh, or at least, or even people who aren't philosophers, that is, you know, engineers who are actually trying to program self-driving cars are finding themselves doing field philosophy? Um, yeah, I think that is probably true. I mean, there's a, there is a, a school of thought, I guess, within some of the field philosophy work that emphasises the way in which philosophy has become a very... Um, uh, like all of our disciplines in, in different ways, has become a very specialised, in some ways, insular discussion. And, um, you, you know, a hundred years ago, maybe not even a not even hundred years ago, uh, it was much more common to have philosophers 
thinking with engineers or thinking about you know um, the ethics of, of medicine or business or and that does happen it doesn't um, uh, it's it's a part of what the discipline of philosophy does um, still uh, but I think there's there's a, a desire amongst some philosophers to to try and uh, develop those conversations more to to de-discipline philosophy is the way that some of these people are, are, are talking about it and to to try and make that a more central part of what philosophy does to to engage with those really grounded empirical contexts and to try to find ways through them and i think uh, i've been out of philosophy departments for a long time in fact i've, I've never worked in one um, so you know whether or not the philosophers want me is a, is a different question um, I really value my background in philosophy and I think it still informs my thinking in really profound ways um, so I think of myself as a philosopher um, but I think there is a there at least there was many years ago when I was last in a philosophy department a bit of a tendency to look down on that kind of applied work um, to to see that as kind of somehow less rigorous or less interesting than these much more abstract insular conversations. I can't say if that's still the case a decade or more later um, because I left because I was really interested in those kinds of questions and I started you know, doing field work and engaging with people around those questions, engaging with biologists. and um, So, yeah, so I guess it's, um, it's those questions that really interest me and, and seeing what it is that philosophy has to contribute to them. But for me, um, having wandered so far out of um, the field of philosophy, I, I'm just as likely to draw on work in science and technology studies or cultural studies or all of the other fields that have that, that feed into the way I'm now thinking about these questions. Right. So perhaps we could go into the more specific fields that you, you've been working in recently, um, you know, and concentrating your work on. Uh, so you refer to the broad field of extinction studies and you know, I'm, there's a lot in there, no doubt. Um, so perhaps you could just begin by introducing us to what extinction studies is. Yeah, well, I guess at the broadest level, it's a it's an effort to think about extinction uh, in a way that draws, in particular, on the humanities and the qualitative social sciences to try and see what they might have to contribute to to this crisis. I guess to the, to the the context, obviously being. Um, this period of incredible biodiversity loss that some are thinking about as a sixth mass extinction uh, of, of life on Earth. And so what that obviously raises a whole range of questions that are the kind of domain for the humanity of the humanities, questions about, about meaning, about our place in the world, about how we, we understand our obligations to other species, to, to, uh, to other non-humans, non-humans and humans. And I guess a, a lot of the work that we are doing in extinction studies is thinking about how both biodiversity loss and conservation efforts to prevent extinction are uh, biocultural phenomena. So they are not questions that are purely technical, purely scientific. They're questions that demand a kind of response uh, from the humanities and social sciences to think about um, their social, um, their human dimensions. So extinction, both as a as a phenomenon, is, is certainly a, caused by uh, human communities in a whole range of different ways, very unequally. It also impacts on communities around the world in in markedly different ways in terms of impacts on livelihoods, on traditional cultural practices. Um, so we're we're trying to 
take up these questions about what often get get called the human dimensions of environmental challenges, but but to to take them up in a way that really refuses that distinction between the human dimensions and and everything else, to say that this is a a much more complicated space of interactions. And so what is needed here is is genuinely biosocial responses that um, that bring the humanities into conversation with the, with ecology and biology and uh, ethology to think about um, what is being lost in extinction why does it matter and how ought we to respond meaningfully to it so it's a big it's a big set of questions um, but it's one that um, yeah the humanities have in different ways engaged with over over the decades um, but we are really, I guess, trying to draw together an interdisciplinary humanities approach to to figure out what that might look like. So it's a, it, you know, it's a fascinating area with so many dimensions to it. I, you know, so many places one could start. But I, I guess one place that I'd be interested to ask you about is is really the kind of ethical starting point around extinction and you know from what you were saying and i think from the usual discourse that we have around extinction we assume that it's a a bad thing um it kind of seems like an obvious point that it seems like a bad thing but is it a bad thing and how do we know i mean why is extinction well is extinction bad and if so why that's a great question it's sort of the question i started off with um because I was a philosopher, and I think that's a that's the kind of question we got. We we a lot of environmental philosophers have written about is is extinction a bad thing? Um, and maybe in a way this is helpful in, in thinking back about your earlier question about field philosophy. Because what I quickly realised is that, that I, I guess in a way I don't think it's the right question. That that every extinction is its own unique phenomenon every extinction is its own particular unraveling of of relationships of possibilities also of course it's an opening up of other kinds of relationships and possibilities um, but so some most of my work has been doing a kind something like a kind of biography of extinction to 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 take the particularity of, of an individual extinction seriously and to figure out what it means for ecological communities, for the cultural community, for the human communities that are caught up in it. Um, so I guess I want to, uh, first, I definitely want to want to say that extinction is a, is a process that goes on um, all of the time, that goes on with or without human involvement um, that's been going on and is, is integral to evolutionary processes. So there's often a, a kind of simple distinction drawn between that, what's referred to often as background extinction or normal extinction processes, uh, and anthropogenic extinction. And sometimes you'll get an argument made by, by someone like Holmes Rolston III, a, a great environmental philosopher, to say that, you know, that that background extinction is like death and the um, anthropogenic extinction is like murder. And, and those are our kind of um, normative... That, that's how we think about the normative context there. I guess I want to resist that a bit, or at least to, to muddy the black and whiteness of it. Um, and which is not to say that that all extinction is bad or all extinction is good, but to to see how each individual extinction unfolds and to explore what it means and what it means to whom, um, because extinctions impact in vastly unequal ways on on different communities, human and non-human. Um, so, yeah, I cer- certainly extinction as a biological process is not a bad thing. It's a, it's part of how life functions. Um, 
certainly there's way too much of it going on at the moment um, in the midst of this you know, mass extinction event. Uh, how we articulate what is wrong with extinction, uh, what is wrong with these particular uh, cases of extinction, is I think a really um, case-specific, detailed, difficult work. And partly it's that because each of them is different and partly it's that because we owe that to those species. Um, That's an we, interesting we, way of putting it. So when you say we owe that to those species, I, I also kind of caught on to the wording that you used before where you spoke about the obligation uh, to other species. And I, I wonder how you kind of transplant that into the kind of non-human realm. So when we talk about owing something or having an obligation, uh, you know, it comes across to me, you know, in a, at least naively as a very human-centered kind of concept. You know, the idea of obligation, for example, is very much a sort of a, you know, a social contract kind of concept or a social... Um, you know, something to do with, you know, rights and duties and very humanistic kinds of things. And I wonder whether you would apply that kind of a concept, for example, obligation. So imagine, you know, an extinction scenario where no humans are involved at all and have to do with process, evolutionary processes of, you know, non-human populations. Would you apply the concept of obligation or, or, or owing something in a situation like that? So many questions there. Um, well, I guess, first of all, I think the, I, I resist the notion that, that obligation or ethics more broadly is a, is a purely human space. And I think that's a, is in itself a really interesting domain of research, um, in the biological sciences, the behavioral sciences, but also in the, uh, in dialogue with philosophy and other humanities disciplines to think about what, what social relationships amongst animals mean whether they come with something like obligations and, and how we might think about about those kinds of questions because I, I do think there are interesting questions about what animals owe to one another um, but that's a, or at least some animals um, uh, I've been working most recently on snails and I'm not sure that they owe anything to anyone but uh, I think depending on the particular animal species that we're talking about we're talking about very different kinds of of sociality and and um, social and, and ethical life um, so that's, I guess, sort of an aside. Um, I think in a way, yeah, the, your question is really interesting and I, I've never written about it but thought about it a bit to think if there – and in a way I guess I've resisted it because that situation just doesn't exist, um, sadly. I mean, there just aren't these cases of extinction that are going on around us today um, that don't bear the, the handprint in one way or another of some human community. Um, the, the impact of – of various parts of humanity, of of various social and economic systems like capitalism, and is ubiquitous. So, well, I think it's a really interesting thought experiment. And I think it does potentially reveal something interesting about the world. It's not, I guess, the pressing question that occupies me, which is about uh, all of this different extinction that so often gets glossed as anthropogenic, which is itself a really problematic term because, again, which which anthropos, why? Uh, which social and economic systems. So, yeah, but I guess if I'm really pressed on the question of, you know, extinctions going on over there that are not in any way impacting and are caused by human communities, um, I guess I would still want to look at the extinction and see what it means for whom um, and and then make a decision about whether or not it's something we ought to work against or um, 
consider to be none of our business in some way. Um, right. But I'm, I'm not committed to a view that things that go on out there without human involvement are natural and therefore things that we ought to, have, to not get involved in. I think we are a participant species on the earth uh, and we ought to exercise that participation, but we just need to do it a damn lot better than we currently do. So how do you find the reaction of biologists, for example, and, and you know, people who are working in scientific research from outside the humanities and social sciences? You know, you mentioned that you, you're working with them in various ways. Do you find that they are receptive to ideas like the ones you've just been remarking on or, or do you find that they give you puzzled looks? I, I mean, I think I mean, the reason why I'm asking is because it's so important for us to think about how, you know, our work in humanities and social sciences has an impact on other lines of work and, and is valuable to other lines of work and, and, and more generally to, to solving these problems. Um, what, do you, what do you find that issues like the ones you just raised you know, what kind of impact do they have on, on your collaborators from other disciplines? Yeah, so many different kinds of, of, of receptions and impacts. And so I guess it, it depends. One of the nicest responses I've had more than once now from biologists is that talking to me is like the conversations biologists have in the pub after they've had a few too many. Uh, and I think that's a nice way of thinking about what, what the humanities can contribute to, to the sciences. Um, and I think, but, but I don't think that's necessarily a, a disparaging comment. I think it's, it's these big questions that often scientists don't feel comfortable talking about, that there isn't a place in the writing conventions of most scientific journals to really unpack. Um, so, so I don't see that as a bad thing. Um, but it is, that is part of what I think. Um, my work, work in the environmental humanities, is, is aiming to contribute in, in this space of conservation biology or conservation science is to uh, ask some of these more philosophical questions about why it matters, wh which kinds of losses matter, how do they matter. Um, that's, that's part of what I think we do. I think we also, or I try to bring in these, these cultural questions that I think a lot of the scientists I work with appreciate. Um, more and more scientists, especially in the conservation space, I'm sure it's happening in other places too, but um, feel unprepared to, for the work they have to go and do with local communities. Um, the work I've been doing most recently in Hawaii, thinking about the, the legacies of colonization and militarization and how those intersect with people's notions of land and people's sense of the imposition of outside forces, including the US government in the islands, uh, and how that comes to matter in particular conservation contexts, um, have, has really been trying to draw out these complex histories and ongoing realities that really matter for whether or not conservation succeeds, mm. as well as for you know, everybody's quality of life. And um, so drawing that into the conversation as well, I think, is something that a lot of the people I interact with are really interested to link, to think and learn more about. Um, and it's not even just those, those big examples. I mean, most recently I've been talking to taxonomists uh, and thinking about which names snails get uh, when they get their, their Latin name. Um, and you know, our, our conventions of scientific naming are, well, they're diverse around the world. They're, they're regulated in some ways. Um, but they do still tend to, to favour, you know, scientists, uh, scientists who's, who are being honoured in some way, often by their colleagues, often for very good reason. But what does that mean in a, in a colonised land, for example, where um, people's 
biodiver- the biodiversity that is people's kin is is having these other names attached to it that don't mean something that that in some cases disrupt or disconnect a kind of familial relationship and that's something i've been talking to to at least at this stage only a handful of taxonomists about it but they are i think really interested in in asking those questions partly Mm. because they work in those contexts and they have to operate in them and partly because they're just good people who care about these uh, these issues, even though they're not issues that have been at the forefront of the way scientists have had to think about these things. Right. So maybe you could tell us, um, I mean, you started talking about the snail's uh, work. Uh, you mentioned it already a couple of times. It would be good to hear a little bit more concretely about what that project has been about. So you have an upcoming book, I, I gather, on the disappearing land snails of Hawaii. So, can you can you tell us about that project? Yeah, um, that was um, something that I sort of fell into doing. I was in Hawaii looking at the birds, um, like most people, um, and writing about the Hawaiian crow and some of the other birds. Uh, and I got to know a bit more about the, the snails, um, and they really just drew me in. Um, and so. That for the last few years, I've been writing this book about um, about the the snails. Hawaii is, unbeknownst to most people, one or was one of the most snail rich places in the world. Um, there are now seven hundred and fifty four described species of land snails in Hawaii. Uh, that is two thirds of the number that are found across the whole of North America, um, which is obviously a, a land mass considerably larger than the Hawaiian Islands. Um, so Hawaii, yeah, was a, a place of incredible snail biodiversity. Over half, maybe closer to two thirds of those species are now gone, um, and most of the others are heading quickly in the same direction. So it's obviously it's an urgent extinction crisis, um, but it's also a um, a microcosm of a much bigger phenomenon, and that's what I'm trying to explore in this book, um, which is the, the the loss of invertebrates around the world. Um, so while you know elephants and tigers and lions get an awful lot of attention, still not enough attention, still not enough meaningful action on their conservation. Um, invertebrates are disappearing around us at a staggering rate and uh, generally unnoticed. So, so one particularly interesting little um, tidbit I think is that there are more documented cases of snail extinctions around the world than there are of mammal, bird, reptile, and amphibian extinctions combined. Um, so snails uh, are disappearing really quickly. Um, and yet the problem both for snails and for, for more broadly for invertebrates is that we just don't know enough about them to really to really know how quickly they're disappearing. Um, most of the world's invertebrates have not even been described by science and of the ones that have been described, the most recent assessment was that 3% of them have been evaluated for their conservation status, um, even even less when we look at the insects, but 3% of snails have been assessed um, of the known snails. So there's just these incredible issues around knowledge, what we don't know, um, and uh, around regard, concern, which which species figure as important and which are seen as kind of irrelevant. So that's part of what I wanted to ex- explore in this book, having done so much work on birds. I wanted to think with some invertebrates for a while. Um, but also I really wanted to, to slow down in a place. A lot of my books have been moving around the world, looking at, at um, particular species in different parts of the world. 
And so writing a whole book on Hawaii was an opportunity to really slow down with these questions of, of colonization and militarization and to think about what uh, what snails mean to, to Kanaka Māori, Native Hawaiians, um, and how they figure in, in Native Hawaiian stories, um, how they matter in one chapter in particular. I'm looking at how activists have used uh, the endangered snails in a particular valley, Makua Valley, to block the U.S. military's destructive training practices, explode, blowing up that valley, which they've been doing for many, many dec- decades. So the snails figure in all sorts of really interesting ways in in Hawaii, in in this history of colonization and these ongoing struggles. So I wanted to try and pull that all together and do a, a, what I th- I'm thinking of as sort of a different kind of of nature writing, one that's um, I hope more more helpful than a, a a sort of simple romantic or a simple pop science writing um, approach for our Anthropocene epoch, that uh, a kind of science writing that is, is co- or writing that's caught up with and um, expressing wonder and, and excitement at all of the incredible things snails do, uh, but that it is also just trying to do that in the context of these more complex processes of loss, of colonisation, of militarization, and more. So do you see it as a... A rich case study, in a sense that that you know raises uh, issues in a general sense for other species around the world and other situations ar- around the world, um, or maybe more specifically, are you pulling out lessons, in a sense, you know, uh, morals of this particular story for uh, other situations around the world that that you know that might be applied? Are you are you kind of pulling out tools that people could take? forward to to other countries other ecologies other kinds of contexts yeah i'm 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 definitely trying to pull out lessons that's a um a big part of what i guess it's the the philosopher in me of trying to to think about what this all means um they're not always lessons that travel well i don't think they're not um they are really richly particular um to the to that the history of those islands to uh, which is which is not just about the history of colonization it's about just the fact of being um, these oceanic islands that emerged in the middle of the ocean over a volcanic hotspot and that has profoundly shaped their ecosystems and and both in terms of their diversity and their vulnerability um, so that it's not like it's kind of a, an easy set of rules that I've I arrive at um, if the book is more of a, a provocation I think to 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 ask about, the connections between these kinds of stories, cultural and natural stories, uh, to ask about deep histories of, of evolution, to ask about um, the, the current situation with, well, some, something I've written about elsewhere, a uh, kind of hospice earth um, where so many species are in this kind of death spiral um, and there's very little we can do to pull them back. Uh, and yet the work of holding on to them goes on. Um, and what does that mean? And is that something we ought to be engaged in doing? And what might it mean maybe for other species? Uh, what what lessons might we take from it? What kind of transformational possibilities are there within this, this work of holding on to species, even if we perhaps can't restore those particular species? Um, so, so there's a lot of yeah, generally relevant kinds of questions that I'm posing in there, but but not in the sense of arriving at sort of a prescriptive set of um, ideas that can be moved uh, around the world easily. 
Right. So, you know, it's very, uh, you know, you listen to that kind of a, a situation and it's it's easy to be pessimistic and it's easy to, to sort of feel that you're faced with an impossible catastrophe that, that kind of can't be undone. Um, and of course, what I think some people are really wanting to emphasize is that there's there's hope and we need to be able to think constructively about how to kind of deal with these issues. And, you know, one of the big challenges as you, you know, I hope you can help us understand better, um, you know, is, is humans and, and how do you get them to, to change their way of thinking and to change their way of acting. And I wanted to raise sort of an interesting tension here. So you mentioned, um, different kind of human impacts or different kind of human contexts and forces on these processes, uh, including, you know, colonial forces and military forces, um, indigenous groups and so forth. So from my point of view, I work in Laos and I work in an upland uh, area, which is an incredible site of biodiversity, uh, which is also a site, of course, of loss of various different species. And and working with Indigenous groups there is interesting because, you know, I kind of maybe went in and a bit naively thinking, well, you know, they would have a um, a very particular kind of value for the the local biodiversity. Um, And, of course, they do in many ways, but it's certainly not you know, some kind of natural uh, conservationism. There's, a, there's, there's similarly among Indigenous people that I work with a very asymmetrical kind of view. You mentioned before about how, you know, elephants get a lot of attention but snails don't in conservation. And what I see with the groups that I work with in Laos, that certain species, it's clear that, you know, uh, that people that I work with are, are not very happy about certain species dwindling for certain reasons. There might be spiritual beliefs, there might be values, there might be, you know, practical usages of, you know, plant species or certain animal species. But other species are really just not bothered um, or even they're quite pleased that, that these, you know, other species aren't around. I mean, tigers are an obvious one that gets a lot of attention and from their point of view they, they don't seem to be too too bothered by the fact that tigers aren't around because they, you know, heard stories that their grandparents would get attacked by them, you know. So there are very kind of local views around what's good and what's bad. And, uh, you know, I'm quite interested to hear your views on kind of how you square the different biases, we could think of it that way, the kind of different biases that you find within different kind of human and cultural groups and different kinds of settings because it would seem to me that you're not going to find a human group that doesn't have some kinds of biases around which species are noticeable, which ones are valuable and, and so forth. Yeah, no, I guess yeah, every community for, for one reason or another has species that they care more or less about and it's it's certainly not a um, um, there's no single community who we ought to go to for our answers about um, which which species um, ought to persist in the environment and which we can just sort of allow to to slip away or or hunt to extinction as it might be and that, and so that's true of the, as true of, um, of the scientific community as it is of indigenous communities so I think what is um, needed is is that kind of pluralist participatory uh, discussion that asks you know 
what do these species mean for you uh, and and how might you, you know, live with them more productively than you than you currently are i mean tigers are a, a fascinating um are fascinating animals and i think that they they are the the kind of animal that um i mean there has been some really interesting work done on alternative ways of living with tigers um, that can can be less hostile uh, or less harmful to to tigers and to people, um, and there, there's that kind of work going on with big predators uh, and other big animals like elephants all over the world, trying to think about you know, better modes of coexistence. Um, and that's another one of the, the areas that I am collaborating with with scientists and others on thinking about coexistence and what does that mean and how do we um, move beyond a kind of emphasis on human wildlife conflict to think about opportunities for coexistence um so so i don't think it's 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 also not the case that um that communities have these fixed or not always the case fixed and unchangeable ideas about which species matter to them and why um there are there are other ways of intervening in those relationships that make a particular species more you know easier to live with or more enjoyable to live with or, or valuable in a way that it hasn't been for generations um and the reverse is also true. There are other dynamics in, in ecosystems that make species that were not a problem all of a sudden one. Um, so I guess I'm, yeah, I'm interested in trying to, to pull as many of those perspectives into the conversation as possible, uh, but not to see them as static, to see that as an ongoing conversation that's about what else might be possible as well. Right. So perhaps we could turn to some of your, um, other projects, which you know, you mentioned the term coexistence, and uh, it seems to me that some of the other projects that you're engaged in are really looking at that. So, uh, you know, your recent book on crows. Some of the work that I've seen you refer to there includes, uh, you know, these videos that you can see on YouTube of crows um, picking ticks off of kangaroos and you know they do this with other creatures i gather um so this kind of interesting coexistence or engagement between uh you know the the tick um and the kind of hairy creature that the tick attaches to and the 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 crow that comes and and eats it and you can frame that in interesting ways in terms of you know whether the, the the crow is doing something for themselves or they're doing a service to the kangaroo or you know whatever the case may be um and similarly, in in new work, I've seen you writing about um, kind of taking a more interventionist sort of position on things like uh, whether you know introduced species are when introduced species are uh, attacking kind of or you know hunting or, or diminishing local species populations. You're you're looking at ways to intervene in that and try to kind of you know. Uh, nudge in a way the, the the behavior of those of those species to 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 slow down kind of processes of extinction. So these are kind of quite interesting but quite different forms of of coexistence. Can you tell us a bit about that kind of concept of coexistence and how you evaluate in the kinds of examples I just mentioned? And feel free to you know elaborate on whichever ones you want. You know how do you evaluate the kind of value of those different uh, roles in a way within uh, the coexistence relationships between species, not not just us, but the different species that you you're, you're writing about. Okay, I'll definitely only answer a portion of that. So, so press me on the other bits if um, if if they're more interesting. Um, but um, 
so I guess that yeah, the work you mentioned on on intervening in um, where animals are preying on um, on endangered species that's a, a relatively new project. Although it's been a, an ongoing theme in my work for many years, but it's, a, it's something I'm trying to write a book on at the moment. Um, but so this is really about th- moving beyond the kind of standard toolkit of killing problematic animals or fence trying to fence them out of an area to protect another species and and i guess more than actually coming up with good ideas i'm i'm exploring what what a bunch of creative um, scientists are doing in different places around the world so a lot of those approaches are really about intervening in animal behavior trying to to teach animals to live differently in one way or another um, and I think that part of what's interested me in, in that work is is why they're interested in doing that. So maybe I'd need to give that some more um, flesh uh, to, as a, in terms of an example so people can actually follow what I'm talking about. But um, So one really nice example from our own campus is work by um, Catherine Price and Peter Banks who are looking at chemical camouflage. So they've, um, in New Zealand, they've been working to, to basically teach mammalian predators that have been that have arrived in New Zealand um, to uh, to ignore the scent of birds so these these predators like rats and and others would come and um, attack bird or eat birds eggs nesting birds um, and so how might we, we rather than trying to poison them all which has been the standard approach and doesn't always work very well and has a range of potential issues um, they've been working to try and teach these predators to, to leave the eggs alone. Uh, and they do that on a, on a landscape level by dropping around this uh, scent um, of birds' eggs before the birds actually arrive to breed. Um, and so the, the rats and others are going and exploring the scent um, for a few weeks and they're finding nothing useful there to eat. And so by the time the, egg, the birds arrive and start laying their eggs, the rats have decided that the scent, this scent is not a reliable Uh, marker of food and they're ignoring it Um, and this seems to be having really good results in terms of increased um, reproductive success for these birds so there's a lot of other really interesting examples like that and then most of them are coming out in the last few years of these kinds of landscape level efforts to to teach birds to live differently and I'm or teach animals to live differently and I'm really interested in the uh, I guess the the um, underpinnings of this what it says about how the how our conservation biology is shifting into an engagement with animals as adaptive beings who are capable of learning and sometimes engaged in social learning are, are doing really interesting things and can therefore be intervened in in ways other than being killed or fenced out they can be taught to live differently um so that's that's what is going on in that work um and i guess i've, I've lost the thread of where I, well i mentioned the crows uh and the ticks you know and the sense in which there is you know that's not a case in which you're intervening in that work um you know in the, in that in that sort of relationship between uh you know those creatures um but it's one in which you see, uh, you know, some kind of a relationship between creatures just in the same way that you see, for example, you know, plants being serviced in some sense by birds who eat the fruits and spread the seeds and, and, and these kinds of things. And I suppose they just kind of illustrate the knock-on effects that might be there if you mess with one part of the ecology and... and uh, and see where that leads. Uh, maybe just yeah. in, in relation to the um, the interventions that you just described in in South 
southern island of New Zealand. And um, you mentioned in your, your work some other really fascinating uh, examples. Perhaps we could come back to this question of the kind of m- moral landscape here around intervening in, in these relationships. So, you know, I can imagine if I was a rat in that context, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be that impressed with this whole program because, you know, maybe I could get other things to eat and it wouldn't impact me that badly and that would be a great outcome all around. But, you know, maybe I really heavily rely on these eggs and so you're actually kind of making it harder for me to feed my my rat kids and, and things like that, you know. So yeah, yeah. when you take it from a point of view of of like an individual or a family unit or something like that in the in the current without thinking about the kind of historical context that I think it might raise some interesting questions and one one of the things that kept coming to my mind was you know the the status of an introduced species as being almost kind of analogous to I don't know settler colonial people um, you know where you, you can you can frame it as being you know this is a this is a introduced species creating these incredible problems um, or you can frame it at a much more local level as you know thinking about the kind of needs and the motivations of the individuals irrespective of their their, their past and so on is does this issue come into your thinking or have you explored this issue around you know what really are just coming back to the rats or the hedgehogs that have been introduced what are their Rights, you know, what if if we talk about obligations to animals, can we also talk about their their entitlements? Yeah, I think that's this is a great question, and it's one of the things that really interests me. And I can't say I have a a, a work through answer. And I guess from what we've already talked about, you wouldn't expect me to have a work through answer that I would want to apply everywhere to all introduced animals. But um, but in the particular cases I've looked at, this has been one of the questions that really interests me. And and partly thinking about what motivates the scientists to do this kind of work. Um, I haven't spoken um, to to Peter and Catherine, who I just mentioned, about their motivation, so I I can't speak about them. But some of the other scientists I've I've spoken to who are doing similar things um, have a range of really interesting motivations. And and sometimes the ethics really figures in this in an interesting way. Um, But it's usually not, and I, I shouldn't generalize too much, but in my experience, at least, it's usually not a question of these conservationists objecting to the killing of animals for conservation purposes. I think most of them are, are okay with that if it can be done humanely and in limited ways and so on. Uh, but but they acknowledge that they're working in a very particular social context where um, a lot of other people object to the killing of animals. Uh, and so, for example, the case I've looked at in, in the Mojave Desert where they've been tra- trying to train ravens not to eat endangered tortoises, um, the, any efforts to control raven populations were halted by lawsuits from PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, in the 90s. So that ethical context, whether or not the scientists themselves subscribe to particular views, is part of the landscape in which they have to operate. Um, so so there are, are those kinds of um, motivations. There are a bunch of other motivations in terms of just intervening in raven behaviour might actually be much more practical and uh, cost-effective and actually get results in a way that poisoning hasn't. Um, but so, so, but to get back to your question about ethics, I think I am really interested in what are the ethical ideas and assumptions that that underlie this. And I, I am really critical, but it's it's something I've been keep meaning to write something on, but haven't come back to. 
Um, but we do have this really interesting idea in Australia, or all over the world probably, but I see it often in Australia, um, where we, we think if we could just get uh, our, our pest control done naturally by someone else, another animal, um, that that clears up any kinds of ethical issues that might exist there. Um, so we sort of outsource the dirty work. Um, and I think one of the really interesting contexts where that's happening is a, is a really interesting live debate in Australia is foxes um, with, who have incredible impacts on small mammals and other species around Australia and also cats. Um, cats have impact, sorry, foxes not impacting on cats. Um, but one of the things that is, is frequently talked about, and I think there's very good evidence as far as I understand to support the idea that having more uh, robust, socially stable dingo populations in the environment would significantly suppress um, fox and cat numbers in a way that would be really great for small mammals. Um, so, you know, what, what that, that word suppress means in this context is um, potentially a bit of killing, um, potentially a bit of into you know just reducing their um, their comfort in environments. Right? So in the end, we end up with fewer foxes and cats, uh, whether they're killed or they're not able to reproduce. Um, and it would be the same thing conservationists would hope, I think, with with the rats in New Zealand or the ravens in the Mojave, that we would end up with fewer of them. So there's some um, kind of a there's a net effect that is that's good on some measure but from the point of view of the foxes or the cats it's it's not it's not it's not the best no that's true um and so in the end i think we have to um ask about how that's being done whether it's the right thing to do and and i am really interested in those questions i do think there is a need to refuse the simple idea that that if the dirty work the predator the um, pest control is being done naturally that it's it's unproblematic um, especially when that natural situation was engineered or, um, or you know, reinstated uh, by deliberate human pro- conservation programs. So um, I think those are real live questions, but I don't think there are simple answers to them. Uh, but I don't think they're being asked. So I think it's, uh, there is that assumption that this is ethically unproblematic if we, we're just restoring an ecosystem or we're doing a kind of non-lethal control but that ends up having you know these kinds of consequences. Yeah. So the uh, you know when one thinks through these kinds of different scenarios, and you know I'm just I'm just kind of bouncing off what you were saying about outsourcing the dirty work in some sense. And if your concern, for example, was humane control of a species that you know you wanted to acknowledge was creating problems for other species and so on. Um, if, uh, you know, the, that kind of dirty work where you let that animal be, you know, killed by a dingo rather than, I don't know, shot or something like that, um, you, that's at least something that you could, you could evaluate the difference in the kind of cruelty that would be involved or the pain, you know, the suffering that would be involved on, on the part of the animal. And it may well be worse in the case of, of, uh, being killed by a dingo. I mean, I, not, qualified to say but you know you can obviously imagine how you might quantify that difference and and how that impacts on our obligations coming back to your point and and i think in the case when well, the case of a lot of dingoes of uh, foxes it's poison and it's um it's it's not a nice way to go um so i shouldn't laugh as i say that's a 1080 or or other poisons historically and and then there's, there's also the knock-on effects of potential um poisonings of the other animals that come and eat the, the fox bodies or um so it's a complicated calculus um yeah and i, I guess i'm 
um, yeah, I haven't I haven't done that kind of work of thinking about you know is a dingo a better way to go than ten eighty? Um, I, I do think that's a relevant question, um, but it's a relevant question in a field of relevant questions that are about you know knock on effects of poison that are about um, you know, what, whether it is we whether we value an ecosystem without foxes and why. Um, what are the? I mean, so some of the work I've done on foxes, for example, is is thinking about how um, there there is a kind of conveyor belt logic to the way we do fox control in Australia, where we we can't get rid of them. Uh, I think most um, people who manage foxes will now accept that that we, foxes are unless there's some sort of biocontrol measure that would potentially have other kinds of problems we're living with foxes in australia so what we do effectively is we just keep poisoning them and they keep reproducing um and that in itself is problematic i think because it's not a good strategy for for generations um but what's even worse than that is we do it often all over the place um with a kind of sense that any dead fox is a good fox we've done our bit we've killed one um without any kind of sense of well over here Actually, foxes are having this really significant impact, whereas over here in urban environments, many urban environments, for example, where foxes particularly doing are doing particularly well, um, really in terms of biodiversity or conservation objectives, what we're doing is ensuring that people can see some more birds and wallabies in their landscape. We are having, you know, there's an ecological consequence from removing foxes, um, but it's not about, in most cases, in urban environments, conserving endangered species. Um, it's it's some other kind of you know uh, conservation aesthetic um, that is informing our decision making about the kinds of biodiversity people want in their urban landscapes, uh, and I don't know that that's a good enough reason to be killing foxes in those particular places. So I think we do need to um, ask a lot of questions there, and they are very place specific, and they're very um, they're about I, I guess fundamentally questioning the idea that that there is a simple goal for conservation in, in this country that's about you know, getting back to 1788, whatever that means, uh, and you know, anything we do towards that is a, is a good objective. Uh, and there's a kind of simple, natural uh, goal here that everyone's on the same page about. Uh, I think, yeah, it's clearly not the case. Uh, and so more discussion of these things and questioning of the underlying assumptions and uh, figuring out you know, what the consequences are for that action in this place is you know, work where philosophers can get in the way. So that's a you know that that's a, a, a really major goal that you've got. I mean, it's incredibly ambitious sort of goal to bring all of these very complex ideas to public attention and into public discourse. And uh, you know, it's 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 fantastic work that you're doing. Um, you know, before we run out of time, I'd like to turn to, you know, your means for doing that. And uh, you've emphasised in your work the notion of storytelling, reaching out to broader audiences, engaging audiences in new kinds of ways. So, you know, I was keen just to talk to you a bit about storytelling as you see it, what, what that is how does it work as a strategy and, you know, what the, the upsides and downsides might be? I, I've, I've certainly got some impression of that myself. Um, but, but first I could just ask you, what do you mean when you talk about storytelling in relation to your research? Yeah, well, what I mean, I guess, coming out of all of the things we've already spoken about is, is this kind of attention to the particular. It's an effort to layer 
multiple voices and histories into the kinds of accounts that we're giving to try and grapple with um, with all of that. And that's, I guess, for me, the key thing that stories storytelling can do that I find potentially um, productive is this um, capacity to allow multiple meanings to travel along together, to to not have to resolve complexity into singular kinds of outcomes. Um, so that as a mode of thinking, I think that that's what stories do and what and what I try to do with them. Um, as a mode of expression, if I can make a crude distinction there that I shouldn't make, um, I think stories are memorable, they're accessible, they uh, are potentially engaging in ways that to draw others in. Um, and, and as a result, as somebody who's particularly interested in questions of ethics, I think what stories do is is draw us into new kinds of relationships um, and with those relationships, responsibilities that we learn to see the world differently through through stories. We, we learn about 1080 poisoning or about whatever it might be. We learn about alternative ways of doing things and we become connected and accountable in some sort of way. So there's also this kind of transformative potential of storytelling, I think. Um, so that's what I want want to do with stories you know, in, a, in a nutshell. I acknowledge, though, that there are um, there's a lot of different ways of telling stories. There are a lot of um, there's a, a growing concern about, um, especially the kind of celebration of first person um, narratives that um, you know, skate over a lot of diverse of diversity and difference that do all sorts of really problematic. Things that distract from structural issues and centre you know, all notions of truth in the kind of arbitrary, often experiences of whoever happens to have the mic. Um, so, so I do think, um, yeah, storytelling is not a kind of not something I want to romanticise as the answer to all of our problems. Um, but there's a particular mode of of storytelling that I've explored in my work with others in this extinction space that I think has the potential to um, to draw out these ethical and political and relational questions in in really important ways. And then how to, I guess, the work more recent work you referred to is an effort to not just tell my own stories, but to think about how my role as a researcher might be to open up space for others to tell their stories. So how do so, you think with storytelling, you know, it's something that I've thought a bit about and and spoken about together with other academics at the University of Sydney in, in sciences. Um, and, you know, we've kind of had this discussion around whether, you know, stories are kind of dangerous in certain kinds of ways and misleading in certain kinds of ways. You, you, you just hinted at a number of the problems with them. Uh, you know, some people would argue that they misrepresent scientific methods and that they, you know, are very subjective and that they put, you know, shine a light on some things and bracket out other things or, you know, they can present completely alternative framings of a, of a situation and, and it, it makes it difficult to know how to adjudicate, you know, which is the right story for this scenario. You know, we talked just before about, you know, do I, do I frame this story about the situation in, um, in the South Island of New Zealand from the point of view of the uh, you know, the birds that are being eaten by the, the introduced rats or from the point of view of the rats. You know, we could tell the story from either frame. So, do, you know, how do we kind of regulate or somehow adjudicate the value of, of, of different stories? Is there a way to, to, to do that? I don't think there, there ought to be a kind of t- 
top-down way of doing it, which I don't suspect is what you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> but I do think there are um, there are ways of. Um, I guess my 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 way of do of doing that is to is to tell different stories. Um, I, I yeah, I don't think that's a that's a certainly not a foolproof response. Um, but I think it's a I, I'm influenced particularly by um, Donna Haraway's work in the way I think about storytelling and her work on on situated knowledges. Um, and so I guess I'm I don't want to 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 advocate for some sort of an objective criteria that we use to to say which are, are the good stories or the bad stories or, you know, this one leaves out this. I mean, any story, and this is the nature of storytelling, that it's um, it's partial. It's always thoroughly partial in uh, not just in, in the sense of what's included and excluded but the kinds of framings. And the, um, and so the, the way I think we tell better stories is to to network those stories together, to make to to allow them or in some cases require them to become accountable to one another. Um, and so that's what, what some of the work I'm, I'm just starting to do with colleagues thinking about uh, environmental controversy through a storied approach is to try and uh, in, have people encounter one another's stories. Um, and these are people on different sides often of these kinds of environmental disputes. Um, but what's, what story has the potential to do is to bring... Um, in a kind of world of meaning of, of what this change means to these people, how it's situated in their particular family history or their livelihood. or their, um, And so to encounter the indifference in the thickness of story uh, and to be have to become accountable for the way in which your story intersects with or damages or undermines um, somebody else's storied existence is, I think, a, a particularly profound kind of... Um, engagement so it doesn't yeah it doesn't answer the question of which is the right story or, or you know what criteria do we ought we to have for storytelling um i think i think i have and i and in my answer a moment ago i i gestured to at least some of those criteria around openness and um and in, in, inclusivity and um Trying to hold, to hold together multiplicity without settling it and resolving it. I mean, these are some of the things, the approaches to my own works of storytelling that that try to address the, the kinds of concerns that you're talking about. But you know, they are not um, foolproof um, solutions to these kinds of things. I think all we can do is is encounter um, those different stories and learn to tell our own differently. Um, and the, and the, the, for example, when I wrote about New Zealand and the chemical camouflage, it was only a paragraph most recently. I didn't talk about the rats in there and I didn't give a kind of rat's eye perspective of, of what this means. Um, I did gesture some of these questions very briefly, but it's also a question then of audience, of the purpose of the story we're telling and what we're trying to say with it. And um, so these are always um, decisions that are being made more or less consciously, not just in storytelling, but in any act of writing communication. Um, and, and so I think all we can do is, is try to be in some way reflexive about that, open about that, and become accountable for how it is that we have learned to see and to share those kinds of um, perspectives with others. Yeah, well, I really uh, like that way of putting it, the idea that, that you know, you want to plurality of stories where they are accountable to each other and I think you know you said it wasn't a solution I think it probably is a solution personally because I feel that what's often 
missing is exactly that accountability um, to other stories and other perspectives. You know, if we look at media discourse and, you know, especially in politics, you get very strong, very powerful, wonderfully told, wonderfully, you know, laser-focused stories that are pushing a particular line or a particular perspective and you're not, then they're precisely not being held accountable to the other perspectives that are that are that are crucial. Um, so while there isn't a recipe for deciding between the stories, I think having uh, paid proper attention to a multiplicity of stories seems to be a prerequisite to to being able to 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 make any kind of informed judgment. Um, it's a it's an incredible array of work that you're doing and um, just fascinated to, to hear about it. Um, listeners who are interested to learn more can look at Tom Van Doren's website, T-H-O-M-V-A-N-D-O-O-R-E-N.org, and there's great material there and information about the upcoming uh, books and also the recently published books. So I very much look forward to seeing the, the new works emerge and uh, just like to thank you for a really interesting discussion today, Tom. Great. Thanks very much, Nick. It was really stimulating and, uh, yeah, very very nice to have more of a discussion and to, to get probed on some of these things that I, uh, that I need to continue to think more deeply about. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you.